One of the issues that all of us have struggled with at one time or another is the sovereignty of God in relation to evil. If God is sovereign, and he is, then why does he allow certain things to happen to people? If God is in total control, and he is, then why doesn't he stop some of the things that take place in this world? It is easy to debate that issue when you are emotionally removed. What I mean is, it is easy to debate and discuss that issue when you are only talking about it theoretically. But when something horrendous happens to you or someone you love, then it's a lot more difficult to wrestle through the sovereignty of God in relation to evil. I have done a lot of reading on the Holocaust and if you have also, then you have probably been stunned by the suffering that people endured and families endured. That's an example on a large scale, and there are many other examples on a smaller personal scale that are no less horrific and painful. If God is good, and He is, and if He is in sovereign control, and He is, then why does he allow, or why doesn't he stop some of the unspeakable things that people experience? Beloved, we won't be able to answer that question fully on this side of eternity. Just accept that fact. We won't be able to answer that question fully on this side of eternity. We do know that God doesn't make mistakes. And we do know that he is carrying out a plan for his glory and for our good. That's the big picture. But we have trouble figuring out how some things can really serve the purpose of our good and God's glory. Of course, that's part of our problem. We tend to think that we have to know how to figure it all out. And we think that, though we may not use this wording, we think that God is obligated to give us an explanation. But God isn't obligated to give us an explanation. Someday we will see and understand, but that may not be in this life. Some of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom. Her family was ripped apart because they tried to provide a safe haven for the Jewish people who were being exterminated in the Holocaust. As a result of what they did, virtually every family member died by execution or in a prison camp or in some kind of awful circumstance. Only Corey survived. One day after she had been released from the prison labor camp, she was riding along on a bus, and she was glancing down at her Bible bookmark. It was a tapestry bookmark that read, God is love. The underside of the bookmark, once you turned it over, was a mangled mass of threads. As she looked at that bookmark, it occurred to her that it was a perfect illustration of what life is like here on planet Earth. There are times when life 
looks like a mangled mass of threads with no purpose or aim, but there is a master weaver who has a different perspective from above, and he is love. As she contemplated that reality, she wrote a poem called The Plan of the Master Weaver. Here's how it reads. Our lives are but fine weavings that God and we prepare. Each life becomes a fabric planned and fashioned in His care. We may not always see just how the weavings intertwine, but we must trust the Master's hand and follow His design. For he can view the pattern upon the upper side while we must look from underneath and trust in him to guide. Sometimes a strand of sorrow is added to his plan, and though it's difficult for us, we still must understand that it's he who fills the shuttle, it's he who knows what's best, so we must weave in patience and leave to him the rest." Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why the dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. That says it well. We won't know until eternity why God has chosen to allow all that he has allowed and chosen to do all that he has done. We aren't expected to know, but we are expected to trust. Some appalling or unfathomable things happen to people in this life. But nothing has ever been as wrong, as unjust, as unfair, as undeserved, as atrocious, as monstrous as when the flawless Son of God was betrayed by a friend, arrested and taken away to be illegally beaten, whipped, tried, and eventually crucified at the hands of sinners. It was the darkest night ever in the history of humanity And we are told about it in Mark chapter 14. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Mark chapter 14 and follow along as I read verses 43 through 52. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying at this time where we pick up the story or resume the story that we have been considering. He is there in the garden. He has taken Peter, James, and John with him beyond the other disciples, encouraged them to pray. And verse 43 tells us, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he came up to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by, 
<coughs> drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and the young men laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. As you can see from reading through this text, this is the night in which our Lord was arrested and began the journey toward the cross. The information in the gospel seemed to indicate that Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock on Friday morning and taken down at 3 o'clock that afternoon. The information also seems to indicate that Jesus was arrested sometime very late on the night in which he had been celebrating Passover with his disciples. The arrest came very late, possibly after midnight. So all of his judicious and, or judicial and religious trials before the various magistrates and officials took place between the time of his rest and his eventual crucifixion on Friday morning. During this night, Jesus had been celebrating Passover with his disciples. Somewhere in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus commemorated the great salvation of God accomplished in the Exodus. Not too long after this, he would be participating in the great salvation of God accomplished in the crucifixion. After celebrating Passover, Jesus and his 11 disciples, minus Judas, left the city of Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley, and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went there to pray about what he knew was coming over the next several hours. He prayed fervently. He prayed passionately. He prayed for strength. He also encouraged his disciples to pray because he had told them at Passover, or leaving Passover, that all of them would stumble on this night. But you know the story. Instead of praying, the disciples slept. The sleeping disciples lost their opportunity to gain strength through prayer. By contrast, Jesus prayed in agony and gained strength to meet his betrayer. Jesus had taken his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane on many occasions. So Judas knew exactly where to find him. He knew where he would be after Passover. When Judas showed up with his crowd, Jesus stepped forward to meet him. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 43. Mark tells us immediately while he was still speaking, now he had been speaking to Peter, James, and John about their sleeping, and he said in verse 42, Rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Beloved, try to get a handle on just how heinous it was 
for Judas to do this. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, then you know that the crucifixion of Jesus was planned from eternity past. It has always been a part of the eternal plan of God, central to the eternal plan of God. Because we know that to be the case, it's easy for us to dismiss the human element of what took place on this occasion. Yes, it was in the eternal plan of God for Jesus to be crucified. But that doesn't mean that what Judas did, or what the Jews did, or what the Romans did was any less monstrous. Their actions were atrocious and inexcusable. In fact, to emphasize this point, all four gospel writers describe Judas with this phrase, one of the twelve. This was one of the twelve. It seems that they are pointing out the utter hideousness and shock of what Judas did. Judas handed over a friend Jesus wasn't handed over to those who hated him by a stranger. He was betrayed and handed over by a supposed friend. This was someone with whom Jesus had prayed and walked and talked and ministered and labored and shared meals. This was someone who had a privilege that countless people would have loved to have had. Only 11 other men had this privilege. Jesus, the majestic and flawless Son of God, chose him to be one of the 12. And I'm sure that there are some here in this room who have thought, wow, wouldn't it have been neat to have been one of the 12? To walk around with Jesus and hear what he had to say, see his mercy and see his works, to see his amazing feats and his miracles. And what would that have been like to be one of the twelve? That was Judas. But Judas showed his gratitude by turning around and spitting in the face of Jesus, as it were. He gathered a multitude of thugs from the religious leaders to come to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew Jesus would be praying. And he came there to turn him over, to hand him over so they could apprehend Jesus. It's almost as if Mark can't bring himself to the point of even saying the name of Judas because in the next verse he simply refers to him as his betrayer. Verse 44, Now his betrayer had given them a signal, a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Oh, how insidious. It was wicked enough to betray Jesus, but to betray him with a kiss is beyond comprehension. The entourage of Judas was composed of a combination of Jewish temple police, and Roman soldiers. It is possible that there were over 600 men in this crowd because a full Roman cohort was composed 
of 600 men. However, the text makes it clear that the Jewish religious leaders were the ones behind this mob. They were the ones who were bothered by Jesus and threatened by Jesus. There's a sense in which the Romans didn't have any problem with Jesus as long as he didn't create an insurrection or cause social instability or encourage revolt. But the Jewish, the Jewish religious leaders had a big problem with Jesus because his life and his teaching challenged them in a multitude of ways. Jesus rebuked them by his life, by his teaching, and by cleansing the temple on two different occasions. So this mob that came to arrest Jesus came from the chief priests and the elders of the people, but the Romans, the Roman soldiers in the group, were present because the Jewish leaders needed permission from the Romans to arrest someone to put him on trial for the purpose of executing him. The Jews knew they couldn't do that on their own. They needed the Romans. And make no mistake about it, the Jewish religious leaders definitely wanted to have Jesus executed. That was their intention from the get-go. They had no intention of giving Jesus a fair trial. The outcome was decided before it even began. They wanted Jesus dead, and they knew that the first step was to apprehend him. They had to get him arrested. Now remember, they had tried several times in the past, but they were hindered from doing so because of various circumstances. That's on a human level, on a divine level. is because it wasn't his time yet. So they had tried several times in the past. This time, they weren't going to take any chances, which is why they sent such a large group to arrest Jesus. Remember now, it is the middle of the night, possibly after midnight, and they didn't have ways to provide bright lighting with only torches and fire lanterns. So Judas knew that he would have to identify Jesus in some way for them. And he decided to do it with a kiss. In the culture of the Middle East, this kind of kiss was not only a special act of respect and affection, it was also a sign of homage. Furthermore, the word that the gospel writers use to describe this kiss of Judas is an intensified word that signifies that the kiss of Judas was a fervent kiss and possibly a repeated kiss. He pretended to show affection to Jesus with intensity. Judas could not have chosen a more despicable way to identify Jesus because he perverted the usual meaning of the kiss so treacherously and hypocritically. Verse 45 tells us, As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. It was a kiss of death. From a human standpoint, Judas sealed the fate of Jesus with this kiss. You wonder how Judas could have been so hard-hearted and so cold and so calculating and so heartless to have done this to someone who was nothing but a friend to him, always a good friend to him. 
I mean, if Judas didn't want to follow Jesus anymore, why not just walk away? He didn't have to stoop to this point. Why did he? One of the answers to that question is money. Judas loved money. We know from John's gospel that as the treasurer, he stole from the money box regularly. Money was one of his gods. So when he found out that he could get some money to betray Jesus, he decided to do it. And he did it in a sickening way. He greeted Jesus as his teacher, his rabbi, and he kissed him. At this point in the story, Matthew tells us that Jesus said to Judas, Friend, why have you come? Isn't that amazing? Jesus still called him friend. And then Jesus asked Judas a question that I believe still haunts Judas to this day, almost 2,000 years later. He asked Judas why. We know from what the Bible says about Judas that when he died, he went to Hades. The Bible is clear on that. We also know from what Jesus taught in Luke 16 that people who are in torment in Hades still think about life here on planet Earth. You can't help but wonder how often Judas, in the midst of his torment, thinks about this probing question of Jesus. Friend, why have you come? Jesus knew the answer. And so did Judas. Judas came to betray his friend. And then the mob arrested Jesus. Verse 46, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This, of course, was the apostle Peter. Mark doesn't identify him. But the Gospel of John does. That's probably because Mark's Gospel was written much earlier than John's Gospel. And when Mark wrote his Gospel, there was still the possibility that Peter could have been targeted for what he did to the servant of the high priest. In other words, Mark didn't want to put Peter's name out there publicly at this point. By the time John wrote his Gospel, Peter had been dead for years. So it was no problem to identify which disciple it was who had done this. No problem in stating that it was Peter. Peter decided to take matters into his own hands. So he grabbed his sword. Now there are two possibilities as to what Peter was doing here. One possibility is that he was actually trying to cut off this guy's ear. You say, well, why would he want to do that? Well, because the text tells us that he was the servant of the high priest. And if you know anything about serving in the temple, you know that if you had any physical defect, you're not allowed to serve in the temple. So it's possible that Peter actually, in a, in a quick flash, reached up and grabbed the guy and cut off his ear. That's one possibility, to disqualify him from being in the temple. The other possibility is that he was trying to kill the guy in defense of Jesus, and he probably assumed that the other disciples would join in the fight, and in the middle of all this turmoil, Jesus could get away. 
But regardless of his motives, his actions were completely out of line. Even though the arrest of Jesus was baseless and unjust, Peter's actions were altogether unacceptable. Two wrongs don't make a right. You can't take the law into your own hands. We know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus warned Peter that if he did, he would end up dead. If you kill illegally, you put yourself in the position of being justly executed by the state, which has that authority granted to it by God, or you put yourself in the position of being killed by someone else who is also a vigilante. So either way, you're jeopardizing your life. That's why Jesus said, put your sword away. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. As was so often the case, Peter didn't think before he acted or before he spoke. Jesus didn't need Peter's help. Jesus didn't need Peter's intervention. Who did Peter think he was? Jesus didn't need Peter to rescue him. The Father would have given Jesus 72,000 angels if Jesus had only asked, as stated in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus wasn't looking to be rescued. He understood what Peter didn't understand, and that was the fact that Scripture predicted the death of the Messiah. Jesus wasn't going to do something to circumvent Scripture, and he wasn't going to let Peter do something to circumvent Scripture. Jesus knew that this must happen. He knew he had to be betrayed and unjustly tried and beaten and abused and crucified. He knew what the Scriptures had to say. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying, he had asked the Father if there was some way he could accomplish the plan of redemption without drinking the cup of righteous wrath. That's what he dreaded most. It wasn't the cruel treatment and the crucifixion as horrendous as those things were. He dreaded becoming sin for us and experiencing the righteous wrath of God. But if it had to be that way, he was willing to submit himself even to that. He was not going to do anything to sidestep what the Scriptures had said the Messiah would experience And he sought to impress that same kind of understanding to Peter and all the others who were standing around. At the end of verse 49, he said, But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus could have escaped all of this. In John 10, 18, he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim throughout all of this. He was in sovereign control of everything that happened, even the things done by those who hated him. He allowed himself to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified. But again, let me remind you that this fact doesn't do away with the wrongness and the cruelty of what these people did. It was reprehensible but it was not outside of the sovereign control of the Father nor the Son. Jesus could have called for immediate intervention from 72,000 angels, and they would have rescued him without a fight. 
But that would not have fulfilled the plan of God recorded in Scripture. So Jesus submitted to the divine plan, yet he also pointed out the utter unjust nature of what this group was doing. In verse 48, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus says this to make it clear that he is not guilty of any wrongdoing. Even though he is destined to die, he makes the point that what they are doing is wrong, it is unjust, it is baseless, it is underhanded, and it is diabolical. If Jesus were a lawbreaker or a criminal, then why didn't they arrest him in the temple? He was there daily for long periods of time, for long stretches, day after day. Why not arrest him in the temple? I'll tell you one reason why. It's because they knew that if they tried to arrest Jesus out in the open and in the public, there would have been an outcry from the people because the population knew that Jesus was no lawbreaker. So they had to do this at night, in secret, in an underhanded manner. And that's what makes what Judas did so insidious. It's, it's almost as if they could not have gotten Jesus. They, they were trying to get him. They couldn't come up with a way to get him. They knew if they apprehend him in the temple, it was going to be a riot, chaos. It's like they wanted to get him, but they couldn't. So how are we going to get him? Well, the only way they're going to get him is if a friend will turn him over. And Judas was willing to play that part. Everyone involved was unscrupulous. So Jesus asked this question to point it out. Luke twenty two fifty three records Jesus saying this, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, this was the night that darkness reigned. From a human standpoint, this was the darkest night ever. The people who wanted to get Jesus but couldn't get Jesus because they couldn't think of a way to get Jesus found a way through a friend. This was the worst act of evil and treachery and wickedness ever committed against any person. Beloved, that is not an overstatement. I know, I know some awful and appalling things have been done to other people down through the centuries, and I would never want to minimize those things. People have been tortured and raped and brutalized and beaten, and those things are horrendous. But these things were done to the perfect, loving, giving, flawless Son of God. That is why I say that from a human standpoint, this was the darkest night ever. But the Word of God won't let us look at this merely from a human standpoint. 
even though it looks like things are spinning out of control and it looks like the power of darkness is going to conquer and win, God is still on the throne. God was carrying out his eternal plan. And think about this. God is able to carry out his plan in spite of and even through the most wicked events imaginable. Did you catch that? God is able to carry out his plan in spite of and even by means of the most wicked events imaginable. Let's never forget that. When we go through dark days and dark nights, we are tempted to think there is no way in the world that anything good can come out of the hurtful things done against us or the wicked things done against us. That's when we need to remind ourselves that God is still in control. God is still on the throne. God is still working out his plan. And God is able to bring good out of the most hurtful or most wicked events imaginable. That's what we see in what happened to Jesus on this night. And if all this wasn't bad enough, look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, Then they all forsook him and fled. In other words, Jesus would face all the horror ahead of him and all the darkness and all of the injustice that was to come. He would face all of it alone. No friends to encourage, no friends to support. All his disciples forsook him and fled. And it wouldn't be long until the Father would forsake him when he who knew no sin became sin for us. And Jesus cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is alone. To emphasize that point, Mark closes this part of the story with a very unusual event that serves as sort of an exclamation point on the point he's trying to drive home to us. Verse 51 tells us, Now a certain young man followed Jesus, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, I know what you're wondering. You say, who is that? And why did Mark put this in his gospel? Especially since none of the other gospel writers say anything about this. What's the point? Well, first of all, no one knows who this was. Though there have been several suggestions down through the years, and the most common suggestion is that it was Mark himself. That's possible. But it's obvious that Mark didn't feel it was important to say who it was because he didn't say who it was. Instead, what was important to Mark is the fact that this little incident shows just how 
forsaken Jesus really was. Mark has just told us in verse 50 that all the disciples bolted. They all left. The other thing that is clear in reading this is that the huge crowds that Jesus had taught were nowhere around for him at this hour. So the huge crowds aren't there. The disciples aren't there. They've gone. And then Mark puts this in here to say, not only did his disciples all forsake him, even this unidentified bystander left him with such haste that the young man left his linen cloth and ran away naked. Jesus was in complete isolation and totally alone. People who should have supported him wanted to get away from him so fast that it's illustrated in this one unidentified man that bolted so quickly that he had to run away naked. What's Mark's point? His point is people left Jesus alone as fast as they could. It is heartbreaking beyond words. Beloved, the next time you go through a dreadful experience in life and you feel all alone, don't forget that Jesus understands. He knows. He was alone. Hebrews 4.15 says, Our high priest knows what it's like. He understands. And he can sympathize. So don't turn away from him in your hurt and pain, as so many do. Turn to him. Don't turn away from him in your hurt and pain. Turn to him. Let's bow together as we close this morning. Beloved, we have a great high priest who understands, he knows, he sympathizes. Don't you dare rob yourself of the encouragement and strength that that truth can give by dismissing the example of Jesus. Don't rob yourself by saying, well, Jesus was God. He he can't understand what, what I'm going through. He can't relate. If you believe that, you're choosing to believe that Scripture is wrong. That Scripture is in error when it says he can and does understand. He does sympathize. We have a great high priest who knows what it's like. He knows exactly what it feels like. So don't turn away from him in your hurt and pain, as so many Christians do. Turn to him. And if you're here this morning without a relationship with Jesus Christ, turn to him. You need to turn to him in simple childlike faith, letting go of whatever is holding you back and just saying, Lord Jesus I want to come to you. I I, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Change me. Grant me your salvation. I turn to you. That's the best thing we can ever do in life. 
is to turn to Christ. Whether that's to turn to Him for the very first time in salvation or to turn to Him on a regular basis in life as one of His. Father, we realize that it's impossible for us to completely grasp the, the horrendous nature of, of what we've read here in this text and the, just the insidious acts of Judas and the, the, the religious leaders of Israel putting all of this together and the Romans cooperating and the disciples forsaking Jesus and this certain unidentified young man wanting to get away so quickly, quickly he's willing to run away naked and Jesus being left all alone. Father, thank you that Jesus understands. Forgive us for when we assume that he can't understand or doesn't understand. And Father, grant that we would turn to him. I pray that especially this morning for those who are hurting, that they would turn to him. I pray that especially this morning for those who have no relationship with Jesus, that they would turn to him, that your spirit would draw that man or woman to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Always prompt us, Father, to turn to him. In whose name we pray, amen.